from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. I am your host, Jonathan Small, the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur, and I have a very exciting guest to introduce you to. David Palaszczuk is here, and David just wrote a really cool new book called Branding Bud, The Commercialization of Cannabis. And David has over 20 years of product development, brand building, consumer marketing experience at companies such as American Express, MasterCard, PepsiCo, and Microsoft. And probably more pertinent to this conversation, he's worked for 10 years in the legal cannabis industry at Dope Magazine and also as a consultant to the industry's top national manufacturers. And David has played a part in developing many of today's best-known cannabis brands. He is the founder of Palaszczuk, which is a cannabis-centric consultancy, and he advises on many aspects of legal cannabis to those currently in the industry and to those wanting to enter the industry. David, congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about the origin story of of this book. Why did you decide to, to write Branding Bud? Well, I got into the industry almost 11 years ago. And uh, even though I've always been around cannabis for most of my life, there were lots of new and intriguing questions about all the components, you know, the constituent components of cannabis, uh, everything from THC to CBD to the terpenes. Um, and at the same time, as I was trying to sort of get my head around that and understand that, new brands were were basically sprouting up, uh, you know, in, in many different states. And because I'm I'm a brander and marketer, I was looking at that and sort of getting to know who the brands were, what they were doing, what the backstories were behind them. And at the time, I was also the uh, vice president of um, brand partnerships and licensing at Dope Magazine. So I knew everybody and was part of what was going on and just dug a little bit deeper and asked, you know, more questions and and started to write about it. And uh, mostly was really interested in the backstories. I mean, there are so many people in this industry that have amazing stories when those come through in, in some of the products and the brands that are created. So that's really what it was all about. You know, branding cannabis is, it's a whole different animal, right? Than some other consumer packaged goods brands. Talk about how one, you know, I would imagine most of our listeners are entrepreneurs that either have a brand that they may want to sort of redesign and rebrand, or they're thinking about getting into the business with a brand. What are some things to think about early on when you're thinking about your brand? Okay, specifically, if we're if we're thinking about a cannabis brand, and that could be manifest in any form factor, if you will, be it flower, be it uh, edibles, beverages, topicals, sublingual slips, transdermal patches, right? So cannabis comes in many form factors. I think the best thing for for people to think about now, and this is pretty much what I take many of my my clients through, is who are we appealing to? So the first thing is, who's the consumer? And what are their need states? And what are their rituals of consumption? So for some, it might be rolling a joint. For others, it might be packing a bomb. For others, it might be peeling open a what looks like a Band-Aid and putting a transdermal patch on you, right? So I think the first thing is we need to know who the consumer is. And if we understand who the consumer is and what their need states are in those rituals that I mentioned, then we better understand what it is they're looking for. Are they a medical patient and are they trying to relieve pain? Are they a weekend warrior just trying to get stoned? I mean, if we look 
their needs are first, then we start to get to, okay, how do we satisfy those needs? And in satisfying those needs, then we look at form factor. So for me, and when I talk about form factor, it's everything I just went through down that list. So if somebody is using a transdermal patch or a sublingual slip versus smoking, there's this discretion versus, you know, a discrete use versus non-discrete use. So that's like one thing, which really starts to come back into lifestyle. So if it comes back into lifestyle, then it's all about the consumer and how they use this product or consume this product. So for me, it's who the consumer is, what form factor is best for them and when they consume and how they consume. And then the next thing is I get into brand archetypes, which are the types of brands that appeal to different consumers. And it's sort of that triad, which I always look at and, uh, you know, and figure out best and how to help my clients getting into the industry and how to help others think about getting into the industry. Let's go back to thinking about who is your consumer. How do you figure out who your consumer is? And is, do you, do you only identify one consumer as your consumer or can it cross into a lot of different types of people? There's a number of different groupings, if you will. But at the end of the day, I look at consumers, there are many different types of consumers. But if you break it down and say, who consumes discreetly and who consumes indiscreetly, that gives you a major sort of look into what brand you should be creating, if you will. So again, if you're a soccer mom and you can't smell like weed or can't smoke weed in front of your kids or in the situation you're in as as you go through your day, then you look for other opportunities. Let me give you a perfect example. I have a son and about two years ago, we were at a park here in Seattle and he was off playing with all his friends and all the moms were together. And I was actually the only dad hanging out with about five moms. And one of the moms says, who wants a mommy mint? And she pulls out a pack of Mr. Moxie's mints. And I, my eyes open wide and she looks at me and says, oh my God, this guy knows what these are. And I said, look at you, you've got some Mr. Moxie's mints. And she said, well, we call them mommy mints here. And um, she said, you know what they are? And I explained that I knew Tim Moxie, the creator of Mr. Moxie's mints. And I was actually in the industry and, um, you know, everybody was a little embarrassed for a moment. And then we got into a great conversation, but I bring that up because those moms weren't going to smoke a joint on the playground together. But what we would do is discreetly pull out beautifully designed box that looks like an Altoids tin and they'd open it up and they'd pass around some mints and they're microdosed, right? So it totally fits into who these moms are and the occasion that they're enjoying, that they're experiencing. And so that was one of the sort of awakening moments for me when I was like, wow, Branding is really important. Packaging is really important. Maybe you should have called them mommy mints. (laughs) That's a great name. Exactly. Exactly. But look at how, you know, this group of moms related to this product in in their own personalized way. And it was pretty cool. And uh, I still continue to joke with those moms over at the playground about that. Right. So what's an example of of a less discreet, indiscreet, you don't have to be specific about a brand, but what would be a packaging that might be under the other kind of banner of like people who are maybe not like canna curious, but are actually more over old OG cannabis smokers. 
Well, I mean, let me even go the other way, and, and I'm going to make an extreme case here. There's a company called Lyra Canagars, and Lyra Canagars make some of their platinum-plated Canagars sell for $15,000. They've been on Vice's most expensivest. People fly into Boeing Field in their private jets to pick up these things on their way to Vegas. So that's the other example. So if you have a platinum-plated Canagar, you are most definitely going to light that up in front of your baller friends and show it around and let the smoke waft in the air and pass it around. And so that's almost the the extreme opposite, right? Of not only consumption, but the willingness or, or the desire to show your consumption of cannabis and a really pricey canagar as well. Yeah. It's so interesting. Have you, I bet some brands kind of want it both ways, right? I can imagine you're like, well, I want to be for the can of curious, but I also want to be for the Canagar crowd. Like I want to be, you know, why do I have to limit myself? Do you find that, do you find it's, it's important for brands to really make that decision early on? Like, who am I really for? Or can you be for both? You can be for many things and there's many types of cannabis consumers. I think in, in the examples I just gave, those are two really wild extremes. So, you know, one, you're trying to hide it, the other, you're trying to flaunt it. So in that case, that might be a little bit difficult. But yeah, generally speaking, there are there are many brands that appeal to many different consumers for different reasons. And actually, one of the things I've done in the book, and I just do this naturally just because I'm a brander and marketer, but the last 10 years, I've been looking at cannabis brands and saying, who are they appealing to? And as I've developed brands, right, I have to ask my question, myself that question all the time too. Who am I developing this brand for? And um, some brands allow themselves to appeal to, to many different groupings. Others don't. You know, what I've come up with in the book are the 14 cannabis brand archetypes. And the 14 cannabis brand archetypes are, well, let me even step back. A brand archetype is a marketing shortcut. It's a way for people to understand what the product is immediately. So if something's, I don't know, if something's natural and organic, typically it's it's marketed in green and, and there's all these other things on it. So you immediately know, okay, cool, this is an organic product. I relate to that. So when in cannabis, over the last 11 years, I've seen sort of this moving landscape, if you will, but there are very specific types of products. And I just want to make it clear, like, they do overlap and they're not mutually exclusive, right? But based, I've got a list of 14 brand archetypes and let me roll. Yeah, tell, tell us some of those. Those are fascinating, I think. Talk about those for a minute. So I'll run through the list first and then I'll talk about it. So there, there's a cultivator brand, there's a gender brand, there's a foodie brand, there's a health and wellness brand, there's a counterculture brand, a prohibition brand, nostalgic, charity, luxury, value, art and design, regional, novelty, and celebrity. And again, they're not mutually exclusive. So, so let's say a Whoopi and Maya might be a great example of both a celebrity because it's Whoopi Goldberg, but a gender-based brand because it focuses on women primarily and, and their needs around PMS and, and other ailments or other concerns. So it's really cool to start to see this. And really, I mean, there hasn't been a brand that's fallen away outside of these 14 brand archetypes. And I should also say, I'm not stuck on 14 brand archetypes. If there's more and, and people can bring them my way and call our attention to them, then that's wonderful. Because that means that the consumers and the brands that appeal to those consumers are diversified. And let me give you an example, a recent example. 
Over the course of the last year during the pandemic, there's been a number of new brands that have come out, which are now, they're either B-level buds or they're shake in pouches of more of a higher quantity. So maybe you can get a half ounce or an ounce. Brands like this are Baker, maybe uh, Nickelbag, um, some, some of the others. But I think that's because and a result of the pandemic, people not wanting to go out. So when they do go out, they buy more weed at a time. Of course, a lot of people lost their jobs and their income. So they're buying a slightly lower quality or again, maybe it's the same quality, but it's shake and it's not buds. The other thing I've also seen is this move toward what I'll call cozy. I'm making a dad joke here, but I'm tempted to create a brand called Sweatpants. But to that end, right? Think about the new big brand, Houseplant. There's another brand, Pantry. They're just these comfortable sort of, like since the pandemic, I think we've got really comfortable. And let me even broaden the conversation. We're more comfortable with, we used to only watch very highly produced commercials and and things on TV. And since the pandemic, we're okay with Zoom calls or, or Skype calls or Google calls. We're okay with showing our living rooms. We're We're okay with, this lesser quality than prior to the pandemic, it wasn't acceptable. So there's this sort of, I don't know, coating, if you will, or veneer that's been taken away. And I think we're all just a little bit more comfortable in where we are and how we are. And maybe the posing and the bawling that we prior to the pandemic has just gone away a little bit. We're just a little bit more real now. And I think some of the brands are reflecting that. Are, do you think there are brands that are household names yet in cannabis. I mean, that's going to eventually happen, right? We're going to start to have some sort of household name brands in cannabis. I don't know if we're there yet. And that might just be the nature of the industry and the fact that, you know, a lot of these brands are not multi-state brands. Like it might be very well known in California, but you know, if you live in Colorado, you might not be familiar with it. And I find that all the time. Like, you know, I think of a brand like Papa and Barkley, which is kind of like in California, it's like a big brand, but I don't know in Washington up there whether Pop and Barkley is up in, in Washington yet and whether you even are familiar with that. But to me, that's like a quintessential cannabis brand of California. But anyway, to get back to my original question, are there any brands right now that are doing it so right that they've almost become household names? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? You know, even if they're doing it so right, are they able to get their brand out there? A side note to this is I always have conversations with brand owners who say, I've got a million followers on Instagram. I'm big. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But you're only in one state and 10,000 of those 1 million can actually buy your product. So where does the rubber hit the road? But to your question, I think it's really intriguing. Papa and Barkley is not here in Washington, although I certainly know them. And again, I'm the outlier. I'm the guy that travels to all the states looking at but we're not quite there yet. And to be candid, I mean, I've, I've gotten some heat over the book. And actually, the book has been very positively received. Where I receive heat around it is exactly that. You're talking around branding and there are no national cannabis brands. And so I'm not making a claim that there are national cannabis brands. What I'm doing is talking about the developing cannabis brand landscape and how that is, has changed over time and how it's moving forward. To answer your question specifically, no, I don't think there are brand names that are known in every household, but I think the one brand name that is starting to make a move is Can. And for a number of reasons, one, Ellen DeGeneres is an investor and just talked it up on her show two weeks ago. So uh, you're here for Ellen and her investment. 
And Chelsea Handler is also involved, which was also mentioned in as Ellen talked about it. So there's a few things which I think is really intriguing about CAN. One, now they've got very well-known people talking about it on national, if not global, television shows. Two, it's a really different approach. It's a beverage. It's not flour. So again, it reaches back into these rituals and need states of the masses, which everybody, well, one, everybody drinks. Then two, what do they drink? And if you start to move into and look at the history of consuming beverages, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, beverages can make claim to gender. Beverages can make claim to hierarchy and your place in society. Beverages can, you know, if you're drinking champagne, you're probably celebrating something. So beverages are pretty amazing in the way they fit into our lives, you know, our human lives. So it would then make sense that, wow, beverages as a cannabis form factor or delivery mechanism might be really the way to go. And then when you start to think about it even further, again, the social aspect of drinking. So coming back to can and why I think that might be the first national household brand, if you will, it's microdosed. So newbies can come in and start slow. Again, it's microdosed. So those that aren't newbies can sort of hang out and, and nurse it throughout a social session, if you will. It's in a pink and other colors, but pretty little can. It comes in four. So it's now really marketed and built as a consumer product good. And I think with that and all the other stuff I mentioned, the bells and whistles and the people talking about it, I think can has a great chance of, of being that first national brand. And then even just to digress, I mean, PBR is in the California market with uh, cannabis-infused seltzer. So on some levels, you could say, hey, there already are well-known brands and nationally established, globally established brands in the market. But I think more will come in as, as time comes and more will be developed as time comes as well. It's interesting you mentioned Can. I've written quite a bit about Can. I've had you know Jake and Luke on my show talking about Can. I was just at a cocktail party one of the first I've been to sort of since pandemic, like a like an, an industry cocktail party the other day, completely outdoor and social distance. And the, everybody around the table was talking about can. What do you think that they've done right? I mean, you mentioned the celebrities. I don't know if that was part of their original branding play to like get celebrities on board. What is your understanding of how they built that brand? Well, here's the cool thing about can. So I'm up in Washington and I have worked for, depending on the month, the number one or number two beverage, cannabis-infused beverage processor here in Washington. I was the chief brand officer there for a number of years. We created a number of carbonated sodas. We created infused teas. We created infused juices, et cetera. And what we've seen in the market is really interesting. So moving back to the early early days of beverage, if you will, in the Washington market. Let me just call out a few things. There's a hundred meg THC cap on a bottle. Even though there's a hundred megs in that bottle, each serving is 10 megs. So technically for a bottle of soda, it's 10 servings. You and I know that once you crack open a bottle of soda on a hot summer day, you're not going to drink one tenth of it and say, okay, that's my serving. So really the approach was, let's create a 30 meg bottle, let's create a 50 meg bottle, let's create a 100 meg bottle. And they're all the same flavor profile or multiple flavor profiles. So if we had five flavors, we were actually selling 15 SKUs in the market, right? You know, one at the low dose, one at the medium dose, one at the high dose. And we quickly saw, regardless of the flavor, that everybody was buying the high dose. They were buying the high dose, I think, primarily 
one, because they wanted to get fucked up. But because when you do the math and you start to say, well, wait a second, this bottle is this, and this bottle is this, and this bottle is this price, I could get twice as much THC in this bottle for not twice the price. Let's just go with the value play, right? It makes sense. So people run this equation through their head when they purchase and they buy now the 100 meg bottle. Okay, so now we've seen this movement here in Washington toward everybody moving toward a 100 meg bottle. We've seen is a second sort of movement, which is now the brands and companies and consumers started to move toward 100 megs, but not in the soda bottle, but now in a shot. So now we realize, okay, people do want to get fucked up because what they're doing is they're taking swigs of 100 megs. So there was both a movement toward the ceiling of THC in the bottle, and then even a second movement to concentrate and lose the liquid and make a shot out of the 100 meg THC. So now there's a number of 100 meg THC shot, you know, shot products on the market here in Washington. So when you look at that, and then all of a sudden you see Can's approach. And honestly, my head was spinning the first time I heard about Can. And then, of course, I reached out to Luke and the guys and, and just really started to speak to them about their strategy. And what became clear was, yeah, they were coming from the opposite end, which was, hey, if we're going to normalize this, if we're going to create opportunity for socialization with a beverage, then it's got to be microdosed, not only for the full day, if you will, but also for those those newbies that are coming in and saying, hey, I want to give this a shot. Maybe I'm going to have this instead of my drink, or I want to try cannabis in a slightly different way. And that's where they killed it. They came out the opposite way that everybody else did. And now really they're the leading edge in terms of normalizing cannabis-infused beverages, in my opinion. And so bravo to them, you know, that said, hey, we're just going to work it from the other end. And they're doing it. Yeah. So they're at 2%, I believe it is, per can. And you were like, yeah, you were in the 100. That's amazing. Yeah, and you had mentioned one of the trends you're seeing right now. You mentioned Houseplant, the sort of cozy, the cozy brands and sort of like post-pandemic, you know, I still don't want to get out of my sweatpants brands, right? What are some other things that you're seeing in the marketplace? I'm sure you always have your eye on things that are even maybe six months out, but are there any other sort of trends you're seeing as far as branding in the cannabis industry right now? Yeah, I am. One, definitely beverages are are taking off for sure. But, you know, moving back to flower for a minute, I definitely see this sort of nostalgic riff sort of taking place with brands like Dadgrass or Vacation or just other brands sort of like going in slightly different directions. And and I think too that, you know, that hits on something right, you know, in terms of um, sort of older consumers, baby boomers consuming now, maybe consuming more because of the pandemic. Again, these brands sort of talking to them like Dadgrass or even a brand like Vacation, while it's not necessarily geared toward an older generation, there's certainly a nostalgic component to Vacation. So I think these brands are really speaking to the different segments that are starting to, I mean, these segments have been there, but I think they're starting to be, they're starting to come into focus, right? You know, we're starting to understand like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Now we're starting to see these people show up. You can walk into a dispensary or a rec store and see people in their 60s. You know, I went into a a rec store not too long ago and was blown away. I was like, everyone was in their 50s and 60s except the bud tenders. And I was like, this is amazing. So 
it's cool. It's cool to see new customers and consumers and then the brand sort of offering them products that, that they relate to. Let's talk about the sort of cliche branding of, if you can even call it branding, but like the sort of Jamaican colors or the, you know, 420 and the, or everything is green. I mean, you even had this struggle with green entrepreneur where like, we're trying to make kind of a hip new entrepreneurial take on, and yet the color is green. Sometimes we use a lot of marijuana leaf imagery. And I don't know if that's necessarily the right approach. I mean, I guess that works for some brands, right? But is that sort of on its way out, that sort of old school approach to marijuana, where it's like, every time you talk about marijuana, you have to show the leaf and, you know, have it be green or have it be making flag colors or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So to a certain degree, I kind of take issue with this. I would, my goal is to normalize the plant and in normalizing the plant, it's getting rid of all the stigmas, you know, and stereotypes tied to it, which are tie-dye t-shirts and everything that sort of comes along with that. You know, one of the things when I first got into the industry and I started to consult and speak, one of the things I would always do is I kind of talk about how the majority, and this has changed over the years, but early on, the majority of the brands all had leaves in their brand or in their branding. The majority of them were blue and green. And the psychology of color, I mean, yes, blue and green are the two preferred colors by all humans. But at a certain point, if you're building a brand around that, you need to start to differentiate your brand, right? So one of the things I would do when I got into the industry and I'd speak, I'd get up on stage and I'd say, how many people are brand owners? You know, and maybe a third would raise their hand. And I'd say, how many of your brands are blue and green and have a cannabis leaf brand? And they'd all raise their hand. And I'd say, how are you going to differentiate yourself on the shelf, right? So for sure, there's not only the cannabis stereotypes, but then there's also other just, you know, sort of consumer brand stereotypes that, you know, I think it's important to avoid. But also, there's lots of things about stereotypes. You know, there's truth in stereotypes too, right? So if you package something green, sure, it's it's either going to seem more organic or more green, for lack of a, you know, in quotes, green. So I think those are certain things that there are certain things you could use to help get your brand in the mindset of the consumer, you know, position it in the mindset of a consumer. But at the end of the day, if every brand is blue and green and has a pot leaf on it, you're lost. There's no different. And so I definitely, in the book, I sort of call out the lineage of stereotypes coming out of really prohibition with uh, cannabis in the fringe, with jazz musicians, with hippies and rolling into the 60s and 70s and Cheech and Chong, and then really even rolling into, as you get into whatever it is, you know, Harold and Kumar and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, just pop culture in general into weeds. And, and then now even really into just celebrities and celebrity brands, right? So it's just intriguing to see how some of these stereotypes just keep on keeping on, but there are other, you know, maybe even houseplant, right? I mean, in some ways, in some ways, you know, it's an eye roller and it's very stereotypical. And in other ways, it's like, okay, that's cool. That's, there's something interesting and, and unique there. So I don't know. I think it, it will keep developing. I think there'll be things in, that take place in, in culture and society that people start to riff on. For example, right now, after Black Lives Matter, there's a big focus on Black-owned brands. And quite frankly, there should be after all the social inequity in, in this industry, uh, let alone others, there should be a focus on that. And we should think about those things. That fell under your, one of your archetypes, for sure, the social. I actually have one in front. I have a uh, justice joints. <laughs> this came the other day. 
which is, it's called justicejoints.co. And yeah, the whole branding is just all around, is all around 100% of the profits go to prisoner release and, and record expungement programs for those convicted of nonviolent cannabis crimes. So it has this very, um, it reminds me a little bit of the farmer and the felon as another one exactly like this. So yeah, I mean, I love that, you know, I think it's so helpful, I think, for people to have archetypes. Like you said, they can go out, maybe they find their own archetype or they find a hybrid of the archetypes you're coming. But I think if you sort of go in there saying, okay, it's good to know that I'm, it's hard to be a social justice warrior type brand, but also a brand that is for housewives in Atlanta. I don't know, like, you know, like that to balance that might be tricky. So I feel like it might be good to find, to find your lane a bit. Yeah. And it's almost like, I don't know, I always share this story just, just as like a, an analogy or um, like a little parable here. Bear with me. So I used to skateboard and actually still, still do. But I think about this. I think about a kid that rolls up to the skateboard park. His friends are all skating. They're 17 year old kids. One pulls out a joint, lights it up. They pass it around. It wafts across the park to the moms over by the swings. The moms look over at the kids. They scowl at them. The kids look back and they're like, ah, fuck you moms. That's what we do. We're 17 year old skateboarders. And you know, that's sort of the scenario, right? Now picture that same scenario and the kid rolls up with a pack of transdermal patches and says, hey guys, put these patches on your arm and and like, we're gonna feel something in a little while and let's skate. That's just not part of their ritual. That's not just part of the experience. 17, you're looking at the moms across the, the park saying screw you as your weed wafts in the air. So again, there's certain times when certain places and where we are in our lives that different form factors and or different brands sort of make, sense to us, you know, like whatever the brand, uh, the canned water brand liquid death, right. You know, like, again, that's going to appeal to somebody at some point in their life, but I don't see a soccer mom, like opening up the can of liquid death and giving it to their kids here, kids be sure to, uh, (laughs) hydrate yourselves before you go out and play with liquid death. So it's just how those brands appeal and who they appeal to. And at what point in their lives are they sort of appealing to them? Well, this is all really fascinating information. Thank you so much, uh, David. The book is called Branding Bud, The Commercialization of Cannabis. I highly recommend you get it. It's a beautiful book. It's got like really, it's uh, got really good like color photography and it's not a cheap book. And, not, and I don't know if it's cheap to buy, but it's not like cheap to publish. That's for sure. Because I feel like the, the imagery is really, um, is really very quite beautifully presented, which I guess in a book about branding is probably very important for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the way, the, the book actually isn't that expensive. It's $24.90 on Amazon. And to my surprise, I'll just add this quickly. To my surprise, the book is number one in branding for two weeks on Amazon. On top of that, it's number one in green business now on Amazon. And I just want to say this. I don't think it's because it has nothing to do with me or the book itself. I think it has everything to do with the timing. New York is going, New Jersey is going, Pennsylvania is going, Trump is out of the White House. I just think there's a new opportunity for us to talk about cannabis and legalize cannabis on the federal level. And that's why I think the book is the number one selling book, because people are really interested in this and the momentum is there. And I'm excited to really be a part of it. Well, I think you're selling yourself a little bit, selling yourself short, because I think it's really well, well done to the book. And you're obviously a really great mind within the industry. David, if people want to find more out about you specifically, where should they go? Well, my website is brandingbud.com. I could also be find on, found on Instagram at brandingbud.com or email me directly at david at brandingbud.com. 
Awesome. All right, David, thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck with your future endeavors. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate your time with me and I appreciate all that you do because you do an awful lot for this industry and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thanks for that. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now. That's W-R-I-T-E to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.